Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good weekend so far? It's, uh, today is, uh, this weekend is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, holiday weekend. And as we were talking about that a little bit earlier and, and thinking about that, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, was a man, uh, a follower of Jesus, whom God used uh, to change the world in some small part, in some sense. I mean, obviously compared to Jesus, uh, in, small, in, in a small way, but also in a very big way uh, in terms of justice and in terms of forgiveness and in terms of reconciliation. And that's what the message of Jesus is about as well. Again, on a much bigger and a much grander scale, Dr. King was talking about uh, the reconciliation between the different races, especially uh, black and white, in America, and Jesus came with a message of forgiveness and a message of justice and a message of reconciliation, certainly between human beings, but also between God and humanity. And that's what we're about here at Renaissance. Uh, the core message that Jesus came to deliver to us is that because of his death and his resurrection, we can be reconciled, we can have a right relationship with our Creator. And that's what we were singing about uh, in several of the songs over the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so. And last week, uh, we began to talk about how God used 11 guys with one message, and that message of Jesus Christ. He used these 11 guys really to change the world. And if you and I had been picking the guys whom God was going to use to change the world, I don't think we would have picked any of those 11 guys. You know, several of them were, were fishermen. They're uneducated. They were, they were literate, but they were uneducated. They weren't powerful. They had really no influence except, obviously, with the fish you know, and, and, and with a few of their friends. Another one of them was a tax collector, the equivalent uh, of an IRS agent on, and, on steroids in some sense back then because... Uh, Matthew would have been viewed as a traitor uh, to the Jewish people, so he's not one that we would have picked. There was a guy uh, named Peter. Peter was probably the best known of Jesus' disciples, uh, of his followers, of the 11. Uh, he ended up denying Jesus, you know, just on the night that Jesus was crucified. So if we had to pick the 11 guys whom God was going to use to change the world, I don't think we would have picked any of them. Yet here we are 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, and you know, we're gathered together to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. And a large part of the reason why we are here this morning and why so many of us have been reconciled in our relationship with our Creator and are being reconciled in our relationships with one another. The reason is because God used these 11 guys to change the world. And Christianity has gone from being uh, an insignificant sect of uh, one of the smallest religions in the world at that time, Judaism, to the majority religion or the, the, the plurality of religion, about 30%, about one third of the world considers themselves to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus today. And that's happened over a span of about 2,000 years. How is it that God worked in their lives to use them to change the world? And how is it that he can work in our lives to use us to change the world? And what I want to do this morning is take a little bit of a closer look 
at the year verse, the verse of the year that we introduced last week. Each year, we like to choose a, a theme verse for the year, something to, to kind of hang our hats on, to keep our focus uh, in one place throughout the year. And our year verse this year is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And uh, Luke writes this, uh, and Jesus is speaking here. He says to his followers, you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, my Holy Spirit is going to come and empower you to be my witnesses, to tell people about me, beginning in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, the capital of Israel. You're going to start there, and you're going to work your way out to Judea, the region around Jerusalem, and then to Samaria, a section just north of Israel, and then from there to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we here in Summit are, from their perspective, the uttermost parts of the earth. They would not have imagined. They didn't know that America existed at that point. And yet 2,000 years later, here we are, worshiping, following, praising, praying to, honoring, singing about, talking about, and having been changed by Jesus of Nazareth because these guys shared a message that their lives had been changed, and they shared that life-changing message with the people around them. And when we read this verse, when when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, we usually focus on this, this concept of being a witness as someone who testifies, someone who tells something. And that's true, and that is a key part uh, of what Jesus is saying there. But there's an underlying assumption that we often skip over when we're looking at this. We jump right to the, you've got to tell people about Jesus. And I think the, the assumption that we skip over is that if we want to be witnesses, we have to have been witnesses. You can't talk about something that you've never seen or never experienced. Go to, go to a courtroom. If a witness is on the stand and is talking about something, is being cross-examined, if it's clear that they weren't there when it happened, they didn't see it, they didn't hear it, they don't really know anything about it, then they're not a witness. And the same is true of us as followers of Jesus. We have to have witnessed what God has done in order to be able to tell about what God has done. And these 11 guys were firsthand witnesses to what Jesus had done. They saw him perform, mir perform miracles. They heard him teach. They watched him die. And then for 40 days after Jesus had risen from the dead, they spent every day of those 40 days with him gaining greater and greater and deeper and deeper faith that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead and that because he had died and risen, their lives were being transformed and they gained a deeper and deeper understanding of that message, of that message of love and grace and forgiveness and transformation. And then they went out and they began to share that with the world. And the world began to change. And as I've been thinking about this over the last several weeks and thinking about what would be a good example of that kind of transformation, how can we kind of put some flesh on, on, on that concept? What I want us to do is look at the life of one of Jesus' followers and how he was transformed, how he was changed by this life-changing message. 
And, and Peter is that, is that follower who I want us to look at. Peter is probably the best known of all uh, of Jesus' disciples. If you ask people to list who the 12 disciples were, pretty much everyone who's going to be able to list at least two or three is going to mention Peter. Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle, of, of the three who were closest to Jesus. You had Peter, James, and John, and then you had the other nine guys. And so Peter and James and John spent more time with Jesus than just about anybody else. And if you read through the Gospels, through the biographies of Jesus, you see this picture of Jesus as, as this brash, impulsive, quick to speak, quick to act, open mouth, insert foot kind of a guy. There have been times in my life when it's like, he is my guy because I am so much like him. You know, you ever, you ever in one of those situations you, where you just look at what you said or what you did and you just wish that you could take that back because you acted too quickly, you acted too impulsively, you acted too brashly. That was Peter. Peter is the guy who when Jesus was walking on the water towards them in the boat, Peter said, hey, Jesus, you just say the word and I can get out of the boat and I can start walking towards you. And he got out of the boat and he started walking toward Jesus. And then he looks and he sees the wind and the waves and he's like, what did I do here? And he begins to sink and it's like, Lord, help me. And Jesus saves him and they end up back in the boat. Two, three years later, Peter's the guy who when Jesus is being arrested by the soldiers, Peter stands up and he's going to defend Jesus and he grabs his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. He acts before he thinks. And he does this time and time and time again. But Peter is best known as the guy who denied that he even knew Jesus when he was confronted by a servant girl. And I want us this morning to, to look at one of the accounts of, of Peter's denial. It was written by a guy named Mark. Mark wasn't one of Jesus' initial followers. He was one who heard about Jesus through people like Peter, maybe, in fact, through Peter, because as best as we can tell, Mark got his information about what happened with Jesus. He got it probably from Peter. So in some sense, we're reading Peter's account this morning of Peter's own denial of Jesus. And what I want us to do, it, for some of us, it's a familiar story. We've heard it over and over and over again. But what I want you to do this morning, whether it's the first time you're hearing it or whether you heard it a bunch of times, put, your, put yourself in Peter's place and ask yourself, what was it like for him? What was he thinking? What was he feeling as this was going on? So Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 66. Peter's below in the courtyard and one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. Let me just interrupt for a second. So Jesus is upstairs in the house of the high priest. He's on trial for his life on Monday, Thursday, the last day of Jesus' life before Good Friday, before he was crucified. So Jesus is upstairs in the house of the high priest, and Peter is downstairs in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest comes by, and when she saw Peter, verse 67, when she saw Peter warming himself, probably a little fire built there, she looked closely at him, and he said, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it. He said, I, I don't know. I, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And then he kind of walked away and he went out into the doorway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, 
hey, this fellow, this guy, he's one of them. And again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. They could probably tell by his accent, by the way that he talked. You're one of them. They're all from Galilee. You're one of them. Peter began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And when Mark writes and says that he began to call down curses and swore to them, it's not like he was using four-letter words. That's what we immediately think that he was saying. No, actually, the word that Mark uses there is the word for anathema. What he is saying is, and pardon the language here, Jesus be damned. I don't know him. He's saying so strongly, I don't know this man, that he was willing to curse Jesus in order to dissociate himself from Jesus. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. Jesus had told Peter that this was going to happen. And Peter broke down and he wept. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. You have just denied that you know this guy that you have been with pretty much every day for the past three, three and a half years. Your life has been affected more by him than probably by anybody else. And here you just said, not only don't I know him, but as far as, far as I'm concerned, God can condemn him to hell. That's what Peter had done. And Luke, one of the other gospel writers, says right after the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. See, Jesus was probably being led down across the courtyard from one side to the other. And so Peter finally curses Jesus, says, I do not know him. And then he sees Jesus turning and looking at him. And he's devastated because of what he's done. We've all done things that we regret. We've all said words that we wish we had never said. We wish that we could take back and we know that we couldn't. And at that moment, Peter felt the weight of that. How, how could Peter ever be forgiven for that? How could Peter ever recover from that? And that's what we have to understand is the depth of the, uh, of the regret, of the sorrow, of the anguish that Peter felt for what he had just done. And then we jump ahead. Less than two months later, about 50 days after Jesus was crucified and risen again, the church has begun. Christianity is just beginning to spread. And who is the key leader of the early church? This guy named Peter, who just seven weeks earlier had said, I don't even know him. And as far as I'm concerned, God can destroy him 
And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that at least in the first third, the first half or so, Peter is the most prominent character in the beginning part of the book of Acts. God used Peter as much or more than he used anybody else in the early days of the Christian church to spread the message of Jesus. God used Peter to begin to change the world. Peter wrote a number of letters to different people, and two of those letters are preserved in what we call the New Testament, in the Bible, as books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. And he collaborated on a third book of the Bible, what we call the Gospel of Mark. So here's a guy who denies that he knows Jesus, who curses Jesus, and then whom Jesus uses to write Holy Scripture? What's up with that? How did that occur? And then eventually, this guy who denies that he knows Jesus ends up dying as a martyr for his faith. He was martyred. He was crucified, as far as we know, under the emperor Nero. How did that transformation occur that when he's confronted by a servant girl, he's not willing to acknowledge that he knows Jesus, yet probably 25 or 30 years later, Peter is ready to die for his faith, and he actually does. And the bottom line answer is, it is absolutely positively an act of God. It is a work of the grace of God in Peter's life. A week or so after Jesus had risen from the dead, he got together with his disciples, and uh, they were eating breakfast together. And what's pretty cool about that account is, you see Jesus eating fish. He had cooked some fish, and, and, uh, and they were eating it together. He was eating it together with his disciples. And if you think about that for a minute, what's that saying? Jesus did not just rise from the dead in a spiritual sense. He rose in a physical sense. And so he's eating breakfast with his disciples to strengthen, to reassure them, to strengthen their, their faith so that they would know again and again and again beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had actually risen from the dead. So they finished eating breakfast, and Jesus says, Peter, hey, Pete, come on, let's go take a walk. And I want to pick up the action in John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. There are several things that, that just jump out at me off the page as I'm reading this account. And the first one is this obvious thing. Jesus asks Peter essentially the same question three times. I mean, what's up with that? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I think what's going on here is Peter had said three times, I do not know him. 
And Jesus says to him three times, do you love me? Three denials, three affirmations of his love for Jesus. I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is, I have completely forgiven you. Not just once, not just twice, three times, this concept of completeness. I know everything that you've done, and I totally forgive you. It hurt. It hurt, Peter. It didn't feel good, but it was absolutely necessary. Jesus did it not to give Peter a hard time, but to help Peter to know that Jesus understood and felt the full weight of what Peter had done. And he wasn't just blowing it off and saying, Peter, it's no big deal. It was a big deal. And Jesus is saying, but it's a bigger deal that I forgive you. And so Peter could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had absolutely, positively, and completely forgiven him. And then, three times, Jesus gives Peter the same command. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And again, I think that threefold repetition means roughly the same thing there. Jesus is commissioning Peter, and he is saying, Peter, you who denied me three times, I've forgiven you, and now I'm commissioning you. And your role is to take care of my sheep. Your role is to be a leader of my followers. Your role is to care for their spiritual needs just like a shepherd cares for the physical needs of his sheep. Jesus is showing grace to Peter. Peter did not deserve to be forgiven. He did absolutely nothing to deserve forgiveness from Jesus. And yet, Jesus forgave him, and that's grace. Peter also didn't do anything to qualify himself to be a leader. Peter, in fact, was as disqualified to be a leader of the early church as anybody could possibly be. And yet Jesus chose Peter to be the primary leader at that point in history of the early church. And that's an act of the grace of God because God's grace, God's love, his forgiveness, God's grace depends on his character not on ours. If it depended on Peter's character, Jesus would absolutely never have forgiven Peter, and Jesus absolutely never would have commissioned Peter to be a leader of the early church. And if, if our role in God's plan depended on our character, none of us would be qualified. But God uses us not because we are qualified, but because he is qualified. And that's the grace of God. And it changes our lives and it changes the lives of the people around us. So when we ask the question, how could Peter go from being this brash, impulsive misfit who denies that he knew Jesus, how could he go from that to being the key leader of the early church? The only answer that we can possibly give is that it's an act of the grace of God because Peter knew that no matter what he did no matter what he had done, no matter what he would do in the future, Jesus had forgiven him and would continue to forgive him. 
He knew that no matter what he did, God loved him. He knew that in spite of the fact that he had denied Jesus, Jesus had commissioned him to be a leader of God's people. He knew he wasn't qualified. He knew his only qualification was the grace of God, the Holy Spirit of God working in his life to transform him. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had called him to bear witness to that love and that grace and that forgiveness that he had experienced. And God gave him the courage. God gave him the courage to share a message that he, just two months before, would have been absolutely, positively unwilling to share because he had been so afraid. God's grace changed Peter's life. And then God used Peter to begin to change the world. 50 days, less than two months after Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter preached what is the first recorded sermon that we have in the New Testament, the first recorded Christian sermon, at least, that we have in the New Testament. And his topic, fittingly, was Jesus' death and his resurrection and God's grace and God's forgiveness. And near the end of that sermon, Peter said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. His audience at that time was, was uh, primarily or actually exclusively Jews. Let, their, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the ruler of the universe, but he's also the Messiah. He's also the savior of the universe. And Peter is saying to them, you crucified him, but God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And we weren't there. None of us obviously were there. We didn't physically crucify Jesus, but we are as much responsible for Jesus' death as the people who actually nailed him to the cross were because we've all done things that we know we shouldn't have done. And we've all not done the things we know that we should have done. We have all sinned. We have all broken God's law. We have all disobeyed him. We have all hurt other people. We have all sinned. And Jesus died as much to pay for our sins as he died to pay for their sins. He, Jesus paid for the sins of all humanity, regardless whether they were born before Jesus, whether they were alive at the time of Jesus, or whether, like us, they've lived after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Peter continues his sermon, and he says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? How should we respond? And Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is, repent, turn from your sins, turn away from your sin and turn to God. Repent, exercise faith in God, recognize that it's your sin that put Jesus on the cross and turn to him and ask him for forgiveness. And this concept of baptism is basically just a public proclamation that Jesus' death and resurrection are my death and my resurrection. They're Jesus paying for my sins so that I can have new life. And Peter is saying, turn away from your sin, turn to God, 
Trust in Jesus, and he is going to transform your life. He'll both forgive you, and he'll also change you. Luke finishes, kind of summarizes what happened in that sermon, and he says, and those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that number, to their number that day. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and their Messiah, as their Lord and their Savior. 3,000 people said, I believe that this man is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again so that I could be forgiven and have new life and be reconciled with my Creator. Peter had been transformed by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And he told others about it and 3,000 people were changed as a result of that one sermon that Peter preached because the Spirit of God worked in their hearts to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God began to use Peter to change other people's lives and then some of them went out and God began to use them and others, and others, and others. And here we are, from what was about 120 people at the beginning of that day to about 3,000 people, and here we are now, 2.2 billion people in the world would consider themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. And it all, all of it hinges on the grace of God. God's grace in forgiving us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the core the bottom line of his world-changing message. It's not a message of fix yourself. It's not a message of be good enough. It's not a message of qualify yourself. It's a message that says you're not good enough. You're fallen. You're broken. You're sinful. You disobey. You fail to obey. And yet, God says, I love you. I want to forgive you. Just trust me. Just follow after me. Just recognize who I am and what I've done. And I will not only forgive you and reconcile you to myself, but I'm going to use you to share that same message with other people so that they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're forgiven, that they're reconciled with their creator, that they can begin to be reconciled to the people around them. And God can use us to change the world. And a question we need to all ask ourselves is, have we experienced that power of God, that grace of God in our lives? Have we come to the point where we have said, Lord, I need you. I've sinned. Would you forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has done? If you've done that, praise God for that and ask him to... to use you to transform you, to change you, and to use you to share that message with the people around you. If you've never done that before, if you've never heard that message before, you've never come to the place where you say, yeah, that's for me, then let me encourage you, take the time today to prayerfully consider that, to ask yourself, have I ever come to the point where I have put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But if you've done that already, then ask God to continue to transform your life, to change you, to give you the boldness 
to give you the courage, to give you the words, to give you the desire, to give you the opportunity to be a witness, to testify to what you have witnessed, to testify to the grace of God that has changed your life and can change the lives of the people around us. By his grace, God offers us forgiveness. He offers us reconciliation. He offers us restoration. He offers us transformation. And by that same grace, God can use us to change the world because he has given us the absolute best message that anybody could ever hear. And that's that because of what Jesus has done, we can be restored to a right relationship with our creator and through that to a right relationship with one another. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this example of the life of Peter. I thank you that you took a man who was singularly ill-qualified, unqualified, disqualified from, from being a leader, and yet you forgave him, and you transformed him, you changed him, and you used him to change the world. And I thank you that that can be true of us as well, and I pray for all of us that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we are trusting in Jesus, you have completely forgiven us. And I pray that that knowledge and the power of your Holy Spirit would give us the confidence, the boldness, the desire to share that message with the world around us. And I thank you for the privilege that you've given us uh, of being part of your world-changing plans. And I pray that you would work in us and through us to bring glory to yourself and blessing to the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks you guys for coming out this morning. I hope you have a wonderful week.